So the Sword of Kaelas has kind of an interesting production history. When they were breaking the stories for the fourth season of Deep Space Nine, they weren't sure if Michael Dorn was actually going to be joining the cast. Okay. So that's kind of... being a like a guest star, you mean? No, well, they weren't sure. I mean, like, if he was either going to join the cast as a main cast member or he wasn't oh, okay, going to. Okay. So they were kind of still... I guess they were still in talks or whatever. And and so when they, you know, kind of the first eight episodes or seven episodes of, of the season, uh, that's why there are no Worf episodes. They kind of had to slot him in where they could. And we kind of talked about that a little bit where they do a good job yeah. of slotting him in where they need to, kind of integrating him into the cast. And, you know, once they did find out that Michael Dorn was, was definitely going to be joining the cast, they wanted to do a Worf-centric story. So they came up with the Sword of Kalos, which I think is... It's both an interesting episode and really not that interesting. I, okay, because I was going to say, I. it was a fine episode, but at the same time, I felt it – not that I felt it was a pointless episode, but I just I, – I, I left it saying, okay, that was an episode of Star Trek. Yeah, it doesn't really tell us much about the Klingons or Worf that we already didn't know. Which on the one, I mean, on the one hand, is that just introducing the Klingons for people who maybe didn't see TNG, or is everybody who's watching DS Nine kind of knows who Klingons are already? I mean, I'm sure there were some people that watched Deep Space Nine that never watched TNG, but I would imagine it's probably a fairly small number. It's not, for example, like how they needed to establish Cardassians, for example, or or anything right, like that. Right, right. And also, I mean, I don't think that the sort of Kales is a really good introduction to Klingons. Yeah, either. And, and and it's also true that we have seen Klingons on DS Nine already, and we, you know. Yeah, and I think that, that this episode, you know, it, it relies very heavily on knowledge from previous episodes. It relies very heavily on knowledge of the Klingons from the next generation. I mean, they bring up things that happened in Redemption, yeah. the two-parter from the, you know, the, the fourth and fifth season of TNG. They bring up things that happened in Rightful Air from the sixth season of TNG when the, the clone of Kalos was introduced. They, they kind of reference things that happened earlier in the season. You know, Core makes another appearance from, I think, the second season episode blood oath yeah yeah so it's you know there's a there's not really a good way to talk about this episode as an introduction to klingons for people that don't know who klingons are and yeah i mean i guess that's that's a fair criticism of the criticism that this isn't a it doesn't really tell us anything new about the klingons but even as an episode of star trek i kind of felt like it needed something no, this was one of those episodes that needed a little more salt and it needed to just stay cooking for another couple hours. Um, and which we haven't seen too much of that lately on DS9. I mean, for the past while, things have been firing pretty hard as far as I can remember. Um, again, it's not like this was a bad episode. No, it certainly isn't. It's not a, it's not a bad episode. It's, it's very well written. I think it's plotted pretty nicely. I think my main problem with the sort of K-less is that there's no B, B story, incidentally. You yeah. know, I, I kind of feel like it would have benefited from us leaving the adventures of Dax, Worf, and Kor in the caves every once yeah. in a while. Because it does kind of drag on after a while. Yeah, it's true. And after a while, it's you get the point. Yeah, there, yeah, the point is very easily gotten very early on in the episode. And, you know, again, like we say, I think we're being a little harder on the episode than perhaps it, it, it needs. You know, it's definitely... I wasn't bored watching it. I think that, you know, there are parts to it that are very interesting. I like the idea of 
uh, uh, the sword of Kaelas and how that's going to kind of bring the, the Klingon Empire back from you know the 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 ways in which Galron is mm-hmm. now pushing the Klingon Empire to leave the Kittimer Accords and you know there's a it is it is a very Deep Space Nine kind of Klingon story yeah and I have to say one of the things that I I mean it's definitely going with the trope you know of this is the One Ring you know basically it's irrevocably corrupting whoever's holding it and yet you know. I thought that there was going to be a reveal that, okay, well, this was, it, you know, the Herc put some kind of, you know, phlebotinum on it that made it, you know, t- but no, it's, it's, these are, this is greed, this is a lust for power that is within Core and Worf, and, you know, assumingly any, because this is such a power, you know, powerfully symbolic, you know, thing, it's, it's such a charged, uh, symbol that you know anybody who has it is going to go a little power crazy and i like that they made it it's it's natural this is you know this isn't something that they're being pushed towards through you know magical means yeah no i think that's actually really good it's it's funny because uh uh in the trivia for this episode on memory alpha they they kind of talk about the idea that initially when this episode aired it was not very popular and people were kind of I guess disappointed, or they thought that there was some sort of you know a uh, 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 neural voodoo yeah, yeah, on yeah. on the sword. I mean, there's uh, which is the right choice for the episode to do to not have that be the case. That is a very because that that and I would say that is what would have what changes the plot from a TNG plot to a DS9 plot. Frankly, yeah, because well, a TNG plot, okay, well, it's not really a natural thing that's causing them to you know, fight and to, you know, Worf is not, you know, generally this power hungry and he's just being, and again, there's a hundred different, you know, ways that they could do that, you know, whatever they pick is the, you know, the cool, this is basically saying that, no, this darkness is within Worf. This allows Worf a, and I mean, all three of them are kind of disagreeing with each other about how they should do, you know, in a way that again, would never have worked on TNG that, you know, was just going against the DNA of the show. This is yeah. a lot more, you know, this is a lot darker interpretation of that kind of a of a thing, you know. Again, it's one thing to make it, you know, well, you're being magically corrupted, you know, somehow. Well, there's, you know, there's a couple different a couple different directions we could go with that, but I think the one question I have about this is Okay, so the Klingons are, as in TNG, they were sort of, I don't want to use the word neutered, but they were definitely more civilized. You know, they they had this thing happen in the undiscovered country where Praxis was destroyed and, you know, it was causing them to have severe sort of economic problems yeah. and, and crop failures and things of that nature. And here comes the Federation to swoop in. They make a peace treaty. And now, you know, 70, 80 years later, the Klingons and the Federation are allied. You know, the, the Klingons are definitely still Klingons. They're 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 very warrior heavy. They're very honor centric. They, they are still you know fighting to a large degree but it's kind of tempered they're kind of putting it in a different direction than they did in the tls era and so starting off the season this fourth season of deep space nine with this idea that because of the kind of you know seismic political shift that the dominion represents the klingons would go back to an earlier time because essentially i think you know they feel threatened by by the Dominion. They feel, I mean, partly it's because they feel threatened, and also partly I think it's because Galron, as Kor says in this episode, is a very political Klingon. You know, he's he's not someone that Klingons necessarily think is a great warrior. And as we saw, yeah. you know, in Redemption and in those kind of plot lines in TNG, he's definitely not. Mm-hmm. That that Klingons don't necessarily respect Galron, and so he's using this as an opportunity to. Uh, you know, kind of elevate his his warrior bona fides in a way. Yeah, I, I mean, it's 
it's interesting because yeah, they they have we've seen Klingon as being very going through a lot of social upheaval. Again, the the events of Star Trek Six, you know, and some of the what we see in the Next Generation in the first few Klingon episodes is definitely talking for the need of kind of a new Klingon, you know, a Klingon that is not so focused on just aimless conflict, but is a bit more united, is a bit more, again, civilized, I, you know, is a loaded term, but, you know, let's use it for right now. Um, this The situation with the Dominion is starting to destabilize things so mm-hmm. much that, I mean, this new Klingon is not a very entrenched uh, concept within their society. And so, you know, if they're regressing, it's not like they had to regress that far at this point or you know if if they're going to you know if they're using this dominion thing as an excuse to conquer again you know which is kind of the direction they're leading to you know yeah no i would agree with that and i think that that's why bringing core into this episode as well is such an such an interesting choice because you know as we saw in in blood oath he is an older klingon he is, and he even says as much in this episode. I mean, they, they bring up the events of Errand of Mercy in this episode, which I don't even know if you caught, but, you know, where they, they talk about him battling Kirk on Organia. Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff. That was, he was the Klingon in that episode. And so that core is definitely of a, of a earlier generation of Klingon yeah. that only knew war with the Federation and has had to sort of, he was adapt old, en- to it. he was old enough post Star Trek six to know, you know, all right, well, we have to do this, you know, but as soon, you know, but he does still have that, you know, foundation of, well, times are changing and, you know, he, he there is a sense of adaptability in him. Yeah. And I wonder if, you know, I buy Kor's desire to kind of take the sword, take the Batleth of Kaelas and 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 go and, and and sort of like take over the Klingon Empire, you know, because I think that the the desire on the part of Worf, you know, Worf has always been very protective of Kaelas. I think partly yeah. because he doesn't really like Gowron, you know. I think that he sees Kaelas as a as a sort of a moderating influence on on the Klingon Empire and the High Council. And well, it's the old, you know. Again, it's it's Worf, you know. It's the book version. It's the fairy tale version of Klingon. Kaelas is. A very literal incarnation of you know the the what Klingons say they are, and also I think too that that you know I don't want to drop this idea of comparing Korn and Worf, but the other thing I, I find very intriguing about this whole idea of the the sort of Kalas and and its kind of mythic influence yeah. on the Klingons and how they really feel like it's going to irrevocably change the way that the Klingons are governing themselves. It makes sense if you look at it from the point of view of the idea that is introduced in this episode about this alien race called the Herc. Yeah, so— Which um, we have never heard about before. And it's very interesting, and I'm wondering if that's tied into the larger plot, you know, for example. So, I mean, so the—, so the It's— The concept of the Herc is that, you know, years, year, you know, centuries ago, they, you know, the Klingons fought a, a mysterious, you know, alien, you know, species from elsewhere, and, you know— so it is very possible Mordor. that yeah it is very possible they may be a gamma quadrant entity I mean It's possible yeah I think know, that's an interesting way to look at it I don't know if you know it's going to be the Kirk or really the Jem'Hadar or the Kirk or re- the the, the Herc or really the uh you know the, the minion I don't know if it would be that on the nose but and I also feel like you know they know what Herc DNA is, you know, and if they were the Jem'Hadar, it would ma- – you know, yeah. they'd realize that kind of instantly yeah. if, they, if it yeah. were, you know. But at the same time, I don't know if it's – you know, it, it seems a weird thing to 
bring up in order to just, you know, be this thing, you know? I mean, I don't I don't know if they have any intent. I mean, I do know, but but I, I don't know if at this point they had any intentions of doing yeah. anything else with the Herc in a real way. I do think that it's it's an interesting concept for this episode to bring up because it does really I think it 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 shows that uh, uh, I don't remember who wrote this episode, but it does show that they do have a pretty good understanding of the Klingons. Because if you look at this and you say, okay, the Klingons fifteen hundred years ago were how, however the Klingons were, and and the Herc invaded Kronos, and they they basically had to, you know, you could really make an argument that that the the presence and sort of the the introduction of the Herc fifteen hundred years ago yeah. was the in what was the 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 precipitating event that caused the klingons to become the way they were that kind of shaped their culture in a in a real way hell that doesn't sound that different from bejor versus cardassia that's a good point yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm thinking of you know dukat's you know comments to kira that you know the Cardassian Empire, you know, strengthen your people, and you know, even though she's not really, you know, even even that's a very crass way of putting it, you know. At the same time, they have come out of this experience better for it. Yeah, no, absolutely, or and stronger, stronger for it, stronger for, for it, it, probably not better. But and I think that too. I mean, we talked about this a little bit when we talked about Rightful Air a few months ago, but. One of the interesting things that kind of was picked up in that as well is the idea of Kaylas as the Klingon version of Jesus. You know, and yeah. of course, our Jesus was turned well, the other cheek and peaceful and love your neighbor and all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, Kaylas is obviously not that. Well, here's the thing. I and mean, here's the context for it. This is a grail story. This is the Holy Grail. You know, this is they are doing a legendary object from their most, you know, important religious figure. And, you know, though instead of a cup, which is, you know, represents you know blood and sacrifice and you know love and all of that here's a sword i mean that that's very literally a yeah you know that that alone you know says what you know the difference between klingon culture and you know i guess you know what we would call european culture i don't know how would we call that anglo-saxon western culture yeah judeo-christian you know that that kind of a it's it's showing them very different context of it and i mean it makes – you know, it does make sense, number one, that Kor gets so swept up in this because he is – the entire time he's telling – Kor. Oh, Kor. Okay. Kor. I was like, did you – do we watch a different episode? <laughs> um, that would be a very different episode. <laughs> the, 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 the calculator of <laughs> – Quark would just be sitting around in the caves complaining the whole time like he did in the Jem Hadar episode. Aw. Um, but yeah, you know, Kor, Kor is telling all of these mythical stories. You know, when they're – when they – you know, when they're embarking, he says, oh, we must savor this moment, you know, and, you know, Kor, the great warrior, and Dax of seven years, and, you know, son of Mo, you know, and he's telling it in this, you know, grandiose, you know, he's making up the stories as they're happening to him. So, yes, of course he is yeah. going to be able to think of himself as, you know, this is my, you know, and gloriously I picked the thing. And, you know, even Worf gets swept up in this. You know, he talks about the vision he had of Kaelas, you mm-hmm. know, which we knew he, ha- you know, had a vision of. And frankly, at this point, Worf not only, you know, the Feder- joining the the joining Starfleet, Worf's done a bunch of things that no other Klingon has done. Frankly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it's... In the hype, in the stress of the situation, in the drama of this situation, you know, it 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 does kind of make sense that even Worf would get to that point. Well, that was my other question for you, and that's kind of the open question yeah. at the heart of the episode is 
I can totally see core buying into this because he does come from an older Klingon culture. You know, he's he's uh, uh, not yeah. a reactionary, but he's definitely of a different but, you know, generation than Worf. But, you know, my well, he, I don't know if it makes sense that Worf would buy into it as much as core does. I mean, in a weird way, yes. And in another way, no. Do you know I feel I mean? like given a different situation, no. But first of all, remember that Worf is not, you know... Worf isn't dealing with, you know, if Worf were dealing with, you know, if, if let's take out Dax and let's put Counselor Troy in, for okay. example. Worf is not going to get this, you know, crazy about this because he has kind of some anchors at this point. He knows he's going back to the Enterprise. You know, he knows that's what his life is going to be. I mean, remember that's a good point, yeah. Very recently, Worf decided to leave Starfleet to become a monk, essentially. So, I mean, he has the idea of dramatic gestures kind of on the brain. And then a few weeks later, suddenly he finds the Holy Grail and realizes that he, you know— Worf, number one, has already changed Klingon history, you know, through his events in getting Garon, you know, to yeah. be the, you know, Worf has a lot of political influence. Worf has made a lot of political changes. And so, and Worf has some very specific ideas about how Klingons should be. You know, Worf does want them to cling to their ideas of honor. You know, if Worf is traditional in a slightly different way than Kor is, Worf does have a image to live, live up to. And, you know, it's not crazy to believe that, yes, with the sword of Kalas, he is going to be able to, you know, inspire others to live honorably and all of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, Worf makes the wrong, you know, is doing things maybe for the wrong reasons, but his heart is kind of in the right place in that, you know, but he's just going a little too intensely and too ridiculously about it. Which he kind of does with a lot of Klingon culture. Yeah. Okay, you convinced me. Thank you. And I think it's a, yeah, I think that's actually a really, really astute point you made about the fact that Worf probably does feel a bit adrift yeah. right now. You know, he doesn't have his his friends on the Enterprise. He doesn't have that sort of moderating influence, that sort of familiar context in which to to build his life, the narrative of his life, right? And I guess that kind of yeah. I mean, like Dax doesn't know how to talk Worf down. Well, that was exactly where I was going with that. Is that the presence of Dax in this episode? Yeah, Dax is trying to act like mom for most of it. Like you know, basically these are two people who are bickering, and she's like, "Shut up, we're going to sleep." You know, you you know, you draw that line. No one's crossing this. I'm holding the sword. Shut up. Like that. That's that's what she's trying to do. Yeah. And I mean. Frankly, that's her dealing with the stress of the situation. We can't forget that the three of them are in a high-stress situation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, they're being chased by other people, other Klingons. Yeah, they're lost in a cave. They, they, they just, you know, they're not happy. They're not at their best. So, yeah, these three of them are just kind of failing at, you know, communicating with each other. And they have this, you know, thing that's going to give them ultimate power. The second, you know... Both Kor and Worf feel like if they have the sword in their hands, the second they step out of this cave, they're becoming, you know, the the king of Klingon. You right, know? right. And the emperor, yeah. Yeah. So they're not really happy to still be, you know, right now they're underground and, you know, they're just trying to fight. You know, as soon as they get on the things, things can be decided. You know, there's yeah. some impatience going on there. Too. Well, and I mean, and honestly, too, I mean, it, it totally makes sense that they put Dax in this episode. Yeah. Because she oh, yeah. Is a, you know, because of her Curzon influences. She no, is I someone mean, she... who, who 
is very attuned to Klingon culture. She can deal with Klingons. She you know, is a perfect choice for the episode. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that Terry Farrell does a good job in this episode. Uh, we say, You know, Terry Farrell is getting a lot better in this season. She like, is. Yeah. I, I, I think so. I, I think with that, um, you know, the, the lesbian episode. Rejoined, you know, was, yeah. That was her clicking and leveling up. Like, yeah. Yeah. And I think, too, you know, it, it, it totally makes sense that, that Dax would... She really doesn't have any time for this shit yeah. in a real way because... I, it's interesting, you know, it, you, I keep going back to that point you made about Worf not really knowing Dax, and Dax not yeah. really knowing Worf, and Worf doesn't really know anybody on, on Deep Space Nine right yeah. now. Yeah, I mean, you and, know, she doesn't know how to talk to him in the way that O'Brien does, for example, you know. Yeah. O'Brien could have take you know, probably could have easily taken Worf to the side and talked him down and calmed him down and, you know, changed a little bit of the course. But in a way, just just because of their lack of experience with each other, Dax can't do that. But one of the things that I like about Dax in this episode is that there's no undercurrent of panic to anything that she's no. doing or saying. She's just very tired and she wants to get out of this situation. And wh- what I what I think is 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 really uh, uh, astute of the episode is to have her have this long history with Core. And I think that at the very beginning when they first find the the sort of Kalas, and I do like the fact that the episode we find it very quickly. She verifies that it's real. There's no question yeah. about it. That That's a smart decision for the episode to make. I mean, I think the episode is structured pretty well, even though it does lag in a couple of places. That it does make sense that that she would probably be a little more sympathetic to to Core because she knows Core. She doesn't really know Worf at this point. And then, of course, once Worf starts getting a little crazy, uh, she doesn't really know how to react. I mean, she knows yeah. how to react to core in that situation, but I don't know that she really knows how to react to work. Yeah. Um, and especially given that generation, yeah, generationally core and Worf are different, you know, let alone the fact that, you know, Worf is raised into different environment has been in Starfleet, you know, I, I, I mean, she's interesting because she is a very neutral party in that she doesn't really, you know, she doesn't care. Yeah. And you know, there's no, you know, she's not going, you know, if she goes out, you know, if she has the sort of Kalos in her hand, she's not going to be Empress Dax, you know, that, you know, just because she's not a Klingon. So, I mean, she's a neutral party and yet she does know exactly what all of this means. I mean, yeah, yeah. She can, you know, because of her history, you know, because she is a, you know, because of Blood Oath, she does have this, you know, strong connection. She is as Klingon as you can get and not be a Klingon, you know. Mm-hmm. She is able to be sympathetic and understanding. I mean, this is it isn't like, you know, she dismisses their conflict because she doesn't understand it, you know. No, she dismisses the conflict because this is she understands it well enough to know this is really stupid. Yeah, yeah. And I think, too, Dax is the only clear-headed person in the episode, of course. And and partly, I think, too, because there there's a Klingon episodes, I think, are, are, are really interesting for the ways in which it portrays their, their culture. And I think to a large degree, both Kor and Worf are, are vastly overestimating what would happen if they bring the Sword of Kalos yeah. back to Kronos. You know, I don't think that suddenly if, if Worf has the sword everyone is going to fall into line no. and he's going to be the emperor and everything is going to be fine. I mean, one of the almost implications is, you know, at the end is this is probably going to start a very nice civil war on, on, in Klingon land. Um, which is the second one that they've almost had yeah, because, in a couple of years. You know, whichever one of those, you know, 
if if Worf ended up with the sword, Kor would try and get followers to take it back. If Kor gets it, someone else is going to get, you know. Th- it's not really like Galron is just going to roll over and let them do yeah, this. Yeah, like there's there's going to be some armies forming. And that's, that's, you know, part of the reason that they end up, you know, jettisoning the sword at the end is because, you know, yeah, we're not ready for it. Well, here's some, here's some uh, uh, sort of speculation. Oh, like the sword, like flies through space and it ends up cutting the dominion in half and that's how that plot ends no i'm no but maybe uh i, I am wondering if you know you could make an argument and and i don't they, they never reveal this i'm not this is not a spoiler but you know you could make an argument that this is one more ways and one more way in which the dominion is starting to infiltrate you know the alpha quadrant powers because of course a klingon empire that is fighting amongst itself hmm. is probably pretty advantageous to the dominion how does the how does he find out about the I, you know, they never really make that totally clear. Because he finds clear. this, he finds the... the, the he finds a the shroud, yeah, which is obviously sort of like the Shroud of Turin. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, and I guess he finds it from some kind of... So maybe it's, you know, yeah, are, is the, can, can we have a headcanon in which, you know, a member of the Dominion gives gives him the shroud, you know, and yeah. set, kicks off this plot. Yeah, maybe. Possibly. I mean, I also think, you know, to go back to the earlier point about a civil war happening, I, you know, we haven't really mentioned the fact that we've got, a, you know, the the party of, from the House of Duras kind of running around. Yeah. You know, Terrell from that one episode of TNG where th- this is going to cause problems. Oh, and I yeah. think that's just a way for the episode to I show mean, us that's... that Worf and Kor are both way underthinking this. It, I mean, it, it's interesting that, you know, that because, yeah, it, you know, it took several years in a completely different show for that, you know, mistake to start biting, you know, Worf, but it finally did. It finally has. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, you know, if the, if the sort of K-Less is not a, a completely successful episode, you know, it does, it does give us some things to think about. I mean, it's one of those that I find I really enjoyed talking about it actually. And I enjoyed it more than watching it. So that's, that's not a bad thing. And at the end of the day, too, I mean, we shouldn't forget that they do come to their senses. And I think once they realize that, yeah. you know, I think once they realize that the House of Duras is not just giving up and they're like, OK, have the sword. They do realize that essentially they do need to give it away because yeah, the Klingons I, at this point are not ready for this. And frankly, you know, again, the difference between a TNG version of this episode and the DS9 version of the episode is that it's not, you know, a, a mind ray or something like that. This is, you know, the well, people. it's like that Vulcan artifact from Gambit Part Two, uh, where where it was sort of like uh, the ancient Vulcan artifact that was like making their oh their yeah the Avada Kedavra kill yeah yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, but I mean, at the end of the day, it's still Star Trek, and they'd still do end up shaking it off and realizing the greater good at the end. And I think that, you know, that 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 alone is. You know, it's, it's a sign that while Deep Space Nine is willing to go to some darker places and perhaps some more realistic, quote unquote, places at the end of the day, it, it still, still comes a... to the same conclusion. And I like that theme because, you know, at the end, this is one of those that's, you know, this is a series that says, you know, no matter how dark things can get, people are still good and people yeah. will still eventually figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about Arman Bashir. OK, so full disclosure, I don't really get the appeal of James Bond. Okay, that's that's all right. I mean, you're not however, you're not straight. However, I do really get the appeal of our man Bashir. I have to say, I don't find tuxedos attractive. I don't necessarily find Bashir attractive, but Bashir in a tux is a very beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I I think they managed to enhance each other's attractive bits while diminishing the negative bits. Do you just want to have a twenty five minute conversation about how much we would sleep with Secret Agent Bashir? I mean, it's very possible. 
Uh, yeah, I, I think that this is a really fun episode. Yeah, it's, that's that, that's the that's the term for it. It's a fun episode. It's you know it's it's interesting because this is actually an episode of the show that I revisit quite a bit. I, I've seen this one a few times, and I really love it. It's always really entertaining. Yeah. I think it's great to see. You know, it's interesting the ways in which the actors this this kind of episode where they're having to play different characters really does show you the the you know quote unquote real actors as opposed to the non you know maybe not so good because Aww. i think that you know for example uh nana visitor does a fantastic oh job oh my god avery yeah. brooks is obviously great uh, and dax is just terry kind of Farrell- basically playing dax well terry farrell is funny in a way though it's funny because she is just doing the broad silly version of herself like you know, she's, you know, yes, she's playing a scientist, but she's also, you know, the the whole, you know, but really, you're beautiful, you know, if you take off your, you know, she yeah. does that part perfectly. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that is a version of Dax that, you know, we don't see. Dax is always taken very seriously. So it's very funny to, you know, see her mocking that, you know. Um, and poor O'Brien, you know, he just, he... he He's an Irish man it, 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 playing a Russian bruiser. He got he got know, some time out this month. You, you know? know, he was just this week. You know, they were <laughs> like, "Well, we'll give you a light one this week because you yeah. got other stuff going on." But you know, yeah, the actors that are able to ham it up and mostly Avery Brooks and you know Nana Visitor are very good at hamming it up. I mean, you know, Avery Brooks is chewing every you know bit of the scenery and having a great time. Oh and yeah, it, yeah, and he's so much fun to watch i mean again that that was the thing you know i can see this being one of those episodes that yeah you can watch it it's fairly standalone you know you don't really need to know who exactly these characters are you know it's there's no huge implications for the future you right know, this isn't taking anything from- well oh there's one offhanded thing that you may have not picked up on that. i may not have picked up maybe on it. is a big deal but we'll talk about that when we get to it okay um yeah no you know well the the the, the funny thing about our man bashir i think it's it works on two levels you know it obviously works on a loving send-up of james bond yeah movies. and you know the music the music cues i mean there, there's a lot of trivia yeah. in the memory alpha article okay. for this episode and they do talk about how they really had to push for you know when, when for example when they did a fistful of data is that in the in the article for our man bashir they say that uh they wanted to do a western style music but they were told not to push it too far mm. beyond you know star trek music yeah. whereas this one is very very outside the bounds of traditional star trek music yeah I think it works well as a bond parody too yeah it, it does it, it really kind of is a is a loving send-up of james bond movies at the same time, it's also a very sly commentary on holodeck episodes. Yeah, it was very, you know, once they, once it was clear this was going to be a holodeck episode, I was really excited to see DS9's take on it. And it was a very different take than I maybe expected it would have. Yeah, we'll follow up on that. I mean, that's, you know, because I, I obviously have, have opinions on it as yeah. well, but I'm curious to hear what, what your well, thoughts on it are. I mean, where... TNG was good, you know, eventually took the holodeck stories because if you put them all together, it is eventually talking for, you know, one of TNG's main themes was the redefinition of life. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the holodeck episodes, especially the Moriarty character, um, are going with, you know, well, what, you know, does a holodeck character have agency? You know, do they think about something? What does it feel like when the computer, you know, when the program shuts down? Yeah. Um, 
DS9 isn't really as interested in the theme of, you know, well, is this life? Can we re-expand the definition of life in the sense that TNG was? Certainly, it's going with the what, what? Maybe maybe something's going to happen in the next couple seasons that'll change your mind on that. Okay, fair enough. Um, but so far, it hasn't really been, you know. It, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, in other words, you know, we know that the Dominion are very different, you know, but nobody's, con- you know, questioned whether it's sent- they're sentient. Yes. You know, in the same way that, you know, we did with the crystalline entity, for example. Yes. Um, and so, you know, this isn't going further with, you know, okay, well, I mean, like, maybe I even thought that it was going to be finally a, a holodeck character actually escapes and is somehow living in the real world. Yeah. You know, like, that That may, you know, and how is that happening and how is that sentience carrying forward? Like, that may have been the, that was kind of more the direction I may have thought it would be going. You know, it's, yeah, no, I think that's that's all very true. And And what it makes me realize is that this episode is a very smart take on a holodeck story because, you know... While TNG holodeck stories are definitely a cliche, and it's kind of, you know, everyone always says, why would they have this thing? Why can you turn the safeties off? You know, why why do they keep letting people do this when the holodeck consistently has the most problems of any computer system (laughs) on the Enterprise? Yeah, sure. But this is really a smart take on it because... And I think this is why Deep Space Nine is my favorite Star Trek show. One of many reasons. Is that this is a holodeck goes awry story that is not about the holodeck going awry. Yeah. It, the holodeck is essentially saving the day. And that's true. It's it's and it's a it's nothing even it, it's the transporter number one that goes awry, and that's the second most dangerous system on the ship, right, frankly. Right. But it's very interesting for what this implies because you know, they talk about you know, th- this finally brings into some of the questions about the transporter that, you know, hasn't been answered as in, you know, could we save somebody indefinitely? Could mm-hmm. we preserve somebody? Now, we've seen this had that happened to Scotty, for example. Um, right, he right. He found a way to keep his pattern. But, you know, they figure out this weird – you know, they're essentially using the entirety of the hard drives on the ship to store, you know. This gives does give me the impl- – you know, for example, if, if – if, um, if the new Brian Fuller show is, you know, the equivalent of the next generation in terms of time yeah. uh, frame, it's possible that, you, you know. You mean like going forward? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah. It's, the next, it's the next generation after this era of time that we're currently in. Yeah. Um, it's possible that they've developed enough processing power to, you know, have the t- transporter just store people indefinitely over time. I mean, that could be, frankly, a way of tra- transporting people over long periods of time. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, but, maybe. But I think, know, you know, it's one of those things. I mean, if we want to go down the rat hole of talking about how the transporter works, then let's do it because I, it's our podcast. Well, that's the thing. Like, I find it interesting that this I, – I like kind of the transporter episodes like that. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it, it's really great because it's it's a sideways to get into a fun Hall of Sweets holodeck story, yeah. you know. It's also a good way to showcase Rom. He's a great character in this episode. And also it's a good yeah. way to get into the idea of how exactly the transporter works because – Essentially, what happens in this episode is, and this I'll bring in what what I said earlier about whether or not this has long term implications, is you know everybody in the crew except for Bashir and Odo are coming back from this conference in a in a, in a runabout, and yeah. they have a warp core breach, and they find out that they've been sabotaged by this Cardassian organization oh, yeah. called the True Way. 
where's that going to go? We okay, don't know. yeah, no, I did forget about that, but yeah, that that is a, and they're making clear that this is their first. They're a new terrorist organization. Yeah. finally, it's like, oh, great, another terrorist organization. This is their first big, yeah. <laughs> we've got the Maquis, we've got the True Way, we've got the Circle from Beijing. It's a lot of terrorist organizations. Yeah. In Deep Space Nine. I was going to say, right now, the Circle hasn't been active, but they certainly could be reactivated. Like it, it, I, I honestly don't know if the Circle plotline is going to ever be revisited. It could go either way if right it, if it doesn't i won't be upset but if it does it's not like they have to explain anything beyond well you know while they weren't paying attention it re you know grouped yeah yeah so what happens is when they're beaming back over to deep space nine there's a power surge and their their patterns are lost so what i like about it is that it does indicate that the pattern buffer is is sort of a non-network system it's yeah. it's it, it's got massive amounts of storage obviously but it's not, and it, it must, I mean, Rom says that it keeps their patterns on the quantum level because that's the only way in which you can store data, store, store the human neural yeah. patterns or, well, sentient human patterns. And so w- what we can assume from that is that it must take just, I, I mean, I'm thinking it must take a tremendous amount of power to keep that much data there for a while yeah. or something. And so essentially what they have to do is separate their their physical pattern. And it's interesting because the transporter kind of takes their physical patterns and their neural energy and it puts it in two different places. Yeah. And but I mean that's how you know frankly computers work. I mean they don't store things linearly right. for the most part. It's just kind of you know, that's what defragging your hard drive is, you know. Frankly. Right, right. And so what I like about this is that, it, it, yes, it gives us a fun story with Bashir and Garrick in the Holland suite having a James Bond type story where all of the characters are being replaced by the patterns of, of, of the main cast members. Yeah. And that's just fun, right? And then it also gives us this story about, you know, the battle of, of uh, Odo and, and Eddington and... And Eddington actually gets to do more things in this. You know, he's... Yeah. I... He's kind of – he's DS9's O'Brien in some ways, maybe a little more explicitly intended to be a secondary character. I mean I always got yeah. the sense that, you know, Kalmini was just an extra that everybody happened to like and, you know, eventually he got a line, then two lines and, you know, so far, you know, Eddington is designed to be a character from the beginning. But he is somebody that's, you know, just sort of there. He's in the background, you know. Every so often he's going to be called on something and he is able to do it. You know, and he's yeah, very good yeah. at his, you know, he's kind of a kiss-ass. He's kind of very, you know, into by-the-books and protocol and stuff and, you know, chain of command and things, you know. But – Well, and I think, you know, Eddington's interesting too because it, it does speak to the ways in which – and this is a – I mean, our man Bashir is a perfect example of this as well because we have Garrick playing a, a, a main yeah. role in this episode even though Garrick is a secondary character. We have Rom in this episode as well. Yeah. We also have Eddington who are all playing integral parts in the plot and resolving this episode's, you know, plot in a sense. Which is one and, of the strengths of an ensemble show like this, of course. Well, it's not even an ensemble. It's just but, DS9 using the secondary characters characters in such a way that you know tng didn't do this for example you know Mm. tng would bring in a secondary character they did have recurring secondary characters but they would appear once a season or something like that i mean it's in we 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 guessed it on the penske files about a month ago and we talked about disaster and if you haven't listened to it you should it was quite good and the penske files is a a great show and especially when we guessed on it But but you know one of the one of the points that I remember making when we when we discussed that was that really you know Ensign Rowe was underused. They made a big show yeah. of pushing her. You know her first appearance in the episode Ensign Rowe in the fifth season. Then she was in Disaster, which was only a few episodes later. But again, wasn't her 
the intention her to be the Kira role, kind of? Well, that's kind of where they were going, but I don't think that's where they were going when they first yeah, introduced her. Okay. And if you look at the ways in which TNG uses Ensign Rowe and the ways in which TNG uses a lot of, or, or DS9 uses a lot of its secondary characters, Ensign Rowe is really underused. She it's has true. this. She has this importance that a a self contained non serialized show can give guest stars because we don't know exactly what's going on with her when she's not on the show. Whereas I feel like if say Gul Dukat dropped in once a season, that would feel unearned because this is just a different show. Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I think one of the things we also said was that you know, yeah, there is no sense of what's happening behind. You know, we have an idea. Goldicott isn't in this episode right now. He hasn't been in the past couple of episodes. You know, we haven't, I think, I don't think we saw him since his adventures with Kira. Yeah, and indiscretion, yeah. Yeah, but it's not like he's... Which wasn't that long ago. No, but it's also, you know, not... But they could also not use him for another three or four episodes. It's not like he's frozen in stasis. You know, we assume that... You know, we can come up with an idea of what he's doing. He's dealing with civilian, you know, stuff. He's dealing with the military. He's dealing with his daughter. You know, it may be very – it's very likely that the next time we go in, you know, somebody's going to ask him, hey, whatever happened with your daughter? Okay, here's what happened, and then we talk about the meantime. They right. have an idea of what's happening in the meantime. If you talk to the TNG writers between episodes, between row episodes, what's Roe been doing in the meantime? Oh, gee, I have no idea. Right, yeah, and I think that's an important distinction. Yeah. So – let, let's talk about Garrick in this episode because what I yeah. what I like about Garrick's this interesting. Garrick is interesting and Garrick is always interesting. Garrick also looks good in a tux. Hey, that essentially it's it's another. I mean, there's so much sly stuff going on in this episode yeah. because we've pretty much all but had explicit confirmation at this point that Garrick was a was a spy, yes. and an operative for the Obsidian Order. I mean, yes. we basically had confirmation for it, but yes. you know, kind of like he could still wiggle out of it. And at this, you know, may, we may not be able to say much for certain about uh, Garrick, but at this point, we could put few, we could bet it on the Dabo tables that he's, you know, yeah, absolutely. And and what I like about this episode is it gives Garrick an opportunity to be sort of the audience surrogate or the audience stand-in, where Garrick is commenting on the events of Bashir's Hollow Sweet novel adventure. He's also which, which, that's the one he got from Nog, right? In the that. I I, is, I don't. Is this the one that um, no, Dax bought for him? No, I don't think so. I don't think it was supposed to be. I don't think that this is something Nog would enjoy. I think that was just supposed to be straight up pornography. Aw, because uh, I thought because that would have been cute. Like if that you that would have been that yeah. was the program, and that you know now we so Bashir figured all right, what the hell? I'll play it, and then turned out he actually really loved it. You know. But but what I what I like about the way they use Garrick in this episode is he's commenting on what's happening. He's sort of a commenting on the absurdity of the James Bond type of story. Yeah. And he's also making Bashir wonder about what exactly Garrick is wanting to do here. Yeah. And I mean, I thought it was very interesting that Garrick seems to quickly go with the Yeah, well let him die if that's what you know it takes to save you. Like he you know, he seems to quit pretty easily. Well, he seems to not that he seems to quit pretty uh, easily. I think he's a he's a pragmatist, and I yeah, think, he is really. You know, if if you look at it from the point of view of a spy's job is to complete his mission. Yes, he's not going to get involved in any sort of extraneous activities unless they really do relate to what yeah, he's trying yeah, yeah, to yeah. accomplish. Whereas in James Bond movies, you know, and and of course in our man Bashir, and of course you could argue that that. Bashir, in a sense, has a mission that is unrelated to what the mission uh, is in this, you know, hollow novel. Well, I mean, that's and that's 
I, but what but, I think is clever is that the way he succeeds in the mission is by failing the hollow novel mission. Yes. Yeah. Because but, yeah, at, at, at the end it turns, you know, because he realizes that the hollow novel mission is utterly irrelevant, you know, as long, you know, everybody in the world of the hollow novel can die except for those five people. Well, and in a sense, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in a sense, because they're too, not real. <laughs> well, the mission of the hollow novel has become keep the hollow novel going as long as possible. Yeah, exactly. And once he realizes that there's no way to keep it going as long as possible without destroying the world, he says, all right, I'll destroy yeah, the world. Because, you know, tomorrow he'll reset the program once everything's all right and he'll be able to go through it, you know. And besides, you know, after you've played a game four or five times, you want to get the bad ending. <laughs> but I but I think that, that, you know, where I was going with that is for Garrick, it would not be a failure to let one or two of yeah. DS9's crew die if the rest came out. You know, I think that, that for Garrick, his mission is to get out of this alive. His mission is to get as many people out as possible alive, perhaps. I don't know. But I don't think that there's a sense on Bashir's part that, you know, there's a very real sense on Bashir's part that if anyone dies, the whole the whole thing yeah. is a failure. Which, you know, that's very Bashir. No, it absolutely is. And I think it makes sense. And, of course, it's the right call. But but what's what's interesting about Garrick is that, you know, they always have this sort of sly energy between the two of them. And Bashir making the choice at the end of the episode you know, Garrick. He, you know, Garrick essentially calls Bashir's bluff, and he Garrick yeah. thinks he knows Bashir better than he does. And I think Bashir's an interesting character. We haven't talked a lot about Bashir's evolution over the yeah. past couple of seasons, but you know, he's definitely in a very different place than he was in the first season, certainly. And he's much less predictable, and I think he's much more, uh, much more of a pragmatist in a sense. You know, he realizes that. Garrick, Garrick is still looking at Bashir as the wet behind the ears doctor who, yeah. who can't make the hard choices, and Bashir is definitely not that person anymore. And, and I think this is where Garrick realizes that because, of course, Bashir shoots him. Well, I, I think it's funny because you know one of the, so part of Garrick's backstory is that you know what we do know is that he somehow betrayed his mentor at the Obsidian Order or disappointed his mentor. Or did something like that. Yeah, we we haven't. 100% figured out the full story, but it's something along those lines. And I think it's very interesting that, you know, when, you know, Bashir does shoot him, you know, Garrick immediately says, oh, there's hope for you yet. Like, this whole time, Garrick has been kind of mentoring Bashir. And, you know, finally, he's listening to him. But I think in a, in a certain sense, too, Gar- I think Garrick, you know, Garrick is a character, obviously, that 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 we can make a lot of different arguments about yeah. it or make a lot of different points about it. We're never really sure where his loyalties lie. We're never really sure who he actually likes and who he's using. And I think this episode goes a long way towards arguing that Garrick does actually like Bashir. I think that's true. They at this point he's become very used to Bashir. He he wants Bashir to be better. Now I think Garrick seems to would like if Bashir were a bit more Cardassian in his outlook, but at the same time, I mean, he gets he gets surprised because you know this is another example where I mean, go back to the root beer conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Garrick does at times think that the Federation is a little weak in what it does, mm-hmm. and you know, because they're nice and they like everybody and they're trying to save everybody. You know, and all of that and. You know, frankly, you know, through most of this episode, Garrick's the one who's thinking he's cooler than Bashir because he would have solved this mission already, you know. And this is, you know, one of the – this show is showing some of the 
maybe flaws in the Federation, some of their weaknesses, but it still does believe that the Federation and Starfleet are tough as nails when they need to be. Yes. And, you know, Bashir is trying to save everybody, but, you know, he's it, – it's funny because, you know, Garrick says, you know, well, sometimes you need to kill the one to save the many. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, another incarnation of that theme. Um, but Bashir's reframing it as, well, I could, you know, I could, you know, risk losing more people or I shoot Garrick and I save all five. Like it's really interesting how Garrick doesn't take that particular calculus into consideration. Yeah, that's true. And I think, you know, it but also it is a, Yeah, it's a very tough and cold one on Bashir's part. Yeah, and it also I think ties into Garrick's. I mean, we know that Garrick has a, a very, very strong survival instinct. Oh yeah. So he doesn't necessarily care that leaving the Hollow Suite might kill everybody else. Yeah. But, you know, to your point about the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few, what this also reminds me of is going all the way back to uh, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, where Kirk says over and over again that he does not believe in a no-win scenario. Yeah. And in a sense, I think that that's kind of Starfleet or the Federation's philosophy boiled down to a nutshell. They don't believe in a no-win scenario. You know, they certainly have to train for it as Starfleet officers, but I think where Bashir is going with this is he doesn't see a way for this to be a loss. He thinks yeah. either he wants to save everybody or he, he refuses to play the game. Essentially, he refuses to play the, well, let's decide who's going to live and who dies, you know, in the same way that Kirk refused to submit to the Kobayashi Maru yeah. test and have his ship be destroyed. I mean, I think it's pretty significant that, yeah, this is, uh, 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 um, you know, Bashir says a couple of times, like, look, this is my fantasy. Like, Bashir is James goddamn Bond in this episode, and yeah, so everything— For legal reasons, he is not James Bond. <laughs> Bashir is James goddamn Bond in this episode, and if he is going MGM, to— please do not sue us. <laughs> yeah, but no, things are going his way, <laughs> and, you know— Oh my god, do you want us to get sued by Columbia Records, too? My way? Or the Sinatra? highway? Please do not sing it. Yeah, no, I think this is a great episode. I think it's fun. And, uh, you know, to your point about some fun episodes like Little Green Man and our band Bashir maybe doing a little bit of pulling the rug out from you. I'm excited about that if that's the case. Well, we will tell you what's coming up next week. But before we do that, we have a little housekeeping to do. All right, I'll get the broom. So if you have any thoughts on either one of the episodes we just discussed, please leave a comment on this post for the podcast at trekaboutshow.com. You can leave us an iTunes review, please, which would be very beneficial. We don't have any new ones to read this week, but we would always like more. Our social media username where you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook is trekaboutshow. And if you are not a patron, patreon.com slash trekaboutshow. If you give us $5 a month or more, like several people do, and we thank you very much for that, you are missing out. On what? Well, this month, we have a patron special on the topic of what Richard and I would like to see from the new Star Trek series. Yeah, so if you give us, you know, a donation, we will uh, let you listen to that. Otherwise, you get to wonder. We are never going to say on this podcast what we speculate for the next show. That is absolutely correct. So... If you would like to know our thoughts on Star Trek 2017, you got to pay for it, folks. We're going to start being very strict about those things. Okay. And, of course, 
tomorrow begins the next season of Trek About Presents. What? When we talk about my dinner with Andre. But what you really want to know is what's coming up next on Trek About next week, right? Well, Richard is going to be very excited to find out that it is a two-parter. Ah! Uh, we're going to be talking about Homefront and Paradise Lost. Is this the shit goes down thing that you've been mentioning? Maybe. Maybe not. I feel like shit's about to go down. It's very possible that shit's about to go down. Oh, man. So, uh, yeah, join us next week for uh, Homefront and Paradise Lost. And make sure to check out Truck About Presents My Dinner with Andre tomorrow. Thank you very much.